Good morning. Good morning. Good to see you all. Uh, new visiting, just want to say a special welcome. Really glad that you're here. And uh, this is, uh, in its simplest explanation, a, a service where we want to worship uh, God. And we worship God by seeing Jesus Christ and the personal work uh, of Jesus Christ, who was his son and did come and lived the perfectly obedient life for us in our place, uh, for our sin, and died paying the debt, rose again, uh, guaranteeing victory over Satan, sin, and death, and then giving us his spirit so we might actually be able to walk in this union that Christ gives us. And so I uh, just want to say glad you're here, whether you're a neighbor, whether you're brought with a friend, whether you are uh, just curious about the things of God and the Christian faith, um, that's, what, that's what we're doing, and that's why we sing songs. One of the ways that we worship Jesus is by singing and, and declaring these great things that he is and what he's done in Christ. We worship Jesus by sitting under the preaching of God's word. That's where we uh, get to be reminded of what God has said, not what we think or what we believe we should say. And I always say these scriptures study you much more than you'll ever study them and that they reveal your heart in the ways that uh, we do not walk in right relationship with God and how God made a way in the person and work of Christ. And we also uh, worship by being generous. We give because God was generous in giving us his son. And so we give in the silver boxes on the back wall. I always say if you're not a regular tender or member, we are not desiring or even interested in you giving finances uh, to this work. We want you to know, love, serve, and embrace the greatest treasure, which is Jesus. Um, we also worship Jesus normally every weekend uh, by observing the Lord's Supper communion. We remember uh, God's saving work through his broken body and shed blood. We're going to be actually participating in communion together in the covenant members meeting. Uh, following this, we're not going to be participating in that in the actual service uh, this morning. Um, and just kind of coming off those heels, November 4th is the next member class. So member gathering if you're covenant members today following the service. But uh, if you're interested in just what it means to be a member here, what it looks like, what we teach, our doctrine, how we're structured, things of that nature, feel free to uh, come to that class, sign up online. It's from 1 to 3.30 on Sunday, November 4th. Um, I think there's some seats over here somewhere if you guys need, need help. Sorry, I didn't mean to call you out, but just, hey, if, 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 if you need one, okay? So uh, we're going to be in uh, Galatians chapter 3. I'm going to pray. We're going to wrap up Galatians chapter 3. Let's ask God to do the things that only he uh, could possibly do uh, in our hearts and minds. We need his help. We need his illumination. We need God to speak and not for just simply myself to speak. So let's go before him. God, thank you that we have the scriptures, written revelation, uh, so that we might know what you have said and how you've wired things to be. Thank you for revealing yourself. So we don't have to walk in blind speculation of who you are, but given divine revelation in the written scriptures. Conform us more to the image of the Son because we were together today. Uh, make us and help us to hate our sin more because we were together today, to love holiness and purity of mind and heart and glory to your name through our lives because we were together today. Uh, Father, we're thankful that you give us your revelation in creation and in Christ. We're thankful that we get to see him again together and hear about him again together. Uh, might Christ fall on a place of our hearts that is necessary today. Help us to never take our eyes off of the life, death, and resurrection of your son. Uh, and to grow and be changed and transformed more into his image as we walk. Help us, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Galatians chapter 3. We're going to finish Galatians chapter 3 just so you're aware. We normally just take books of the Bible and walk through them so we might see all that God might want to say to us in the scriptures. And so we're going to uh, walk through, uh, we've walked through the book of Galatians where fundamentally Paul uh, planted these churches in Galatia, which is modern day Turkey. It's a group of churches he's writing to and he has one primary burden. His burden is that they've drifted from the gospel of Jesus Christ. The good news that Jesus Christ alone makes you right before God. That it's not your merits, it's not your church attendance, it's not your prayers. 
desires. It's not your abilities. It's not your moralism. It is none of you, all of him. Um, that's the message that Paul wants them to get because he knows that, get, that getting that gospel not only saves you, but it transforms you. So we've been talking repeatedly because Paul's been talking about it repeatedly that we have to continually go back to life, death, resurrection of Jesus. Don't let your eyes drift from there. Don't take your mind off of there. Don't take your heart off of there. And so he's actually going to wrap up his final argument this morning dealing with grace and the law. Um, and then he's going to move in chapters 4 through 6 more into the outworkings of this grace and when we understand it and how it bends itself into our lives more fully. So um, I was thinking this week um, about this question, so I, I'm going to ask it. I want you to raise your hand just uh, to consider this. But of all, all you know of the scriptures, um, and I, if you're someone who's like, hey, this is the first time I've even been with someone who's opening up their Bible, that, that's okay. But if you've grown up in the church, if you all that you know about the scriptures, what do you believe you see as kind of the proclivity in the human heart that the scriptures and God just goes after. I want you to think about that. Like, what's sin? Now, I'm not saying that all sin damns you. All sin separates you from God. But I'm saying just uh, for sake of discussion and getting into the heart of God, is there one that really bothers him and grieves him? Um, As I was thinking about this this week, I was thinking that it's totally self-righteousness, pride, right? If you just do a quick run through the scriptures. I mean, Isaiah, Isaiah 2 will say, God actually has a place reserved for those who are proud and lofty to humble them. Um, he'll say often he gives grace to those who are humble and he does not exalt the proud. I mean, look at how Jesus himself dealt with the Pharisees in the New Testament. I mean, he was harshest with them. Those who believed in their self-righteousness they could earn, they could obtain, they could achieve. He calls them devils. That's not a compliment. Like, he's not encouraging them. He's not, he's not trying to edify what they're doing or the message that they're preaching and sharing. He, he just goes after those that believe that in some way, shape, or form, I don't need grace. I don't need the plan of redemption that's been laid out before the foundation of the world. I can do this. And, and as I was thinking about the reason I say this idea of self-righteousness, the reason I mention this is because um, pride, the, the pride in the human heart, self-righteousness in the human heart goes against God's entire plan of redemption. I mean, if you just get into God's head just for a second, I mean, we can't, but just figuratively think from his perspective, he exists in infinite perfections. He is Fully glorified in his own name. He does not need you to help him with glory. He does not need you to help him with how he runs the universe. He does not need your help in thoughts as to how he should create humanity or how he should wire them to live and work. He, he just exists in his own pleasure of being. And as he exists in that, it's his plan that he would create out of nothing. He would speak and planets and stars and the sun and earth would be formed. And then he would gift life to humanity. And then he comes to this humanity, and Adam and Eve, right, first marriage, and he is a deeply generous God. He is not stingy. So many people say, oh, God, the Bible is so stingy. No, he, he actually says, out of the gate, uh, you can have at it. You can enjoy this entire paradise. Just don't do this one thing. Uh, that's not a God who withholds. That's a God who's deeply generous and giving of this goodness to Adam and Eve. And what does he say? Uh, don't touch that one tree, right? Believe me. Trust me. Trust my ways. Don't try to be God. Trust who God is. And what do they do? They break the commandment. 
They break the law that God gave and don't do this. And then, and then all you see is then he comes to Abraham and he, he tells about all these promises because these people, if you just read Old Testament history, it's just people failing and failing and failing and failing. And eventually, right, who comes in? Jesus, who is always the plan A, and he's the hero of the whole story. And he says, hey, look at my son. You couldn't obey me in of yourself. You couldn't glorify my name in of yourself. You couldn't live the way I designed in of yourself. So if you trust in Christ, he will become your sin for you. Not sin. He will become your sin. He will gift you his righteous life and you'll be set free from Satan, sin, and death to walk in the fullness of what God has given you. That's the good news. Um, And so all of creation now says he's awesome, he's awesome. We get saved and we don't go, hey, I'm awesome. We say, you're so gracious. You're so merciful. You're so awesome. He's the center. So he doesn't save us so we stay the center. He saves us so that he remains the center and we enjoy his glory and get caught up in it so that we might have joy to the full. Okay, that's the good news of the gospel. Now, here, here's, because this has is, this is always been the story. Because even the anthem in Revelation is, you're awesome, you're awesome, you're awesome. So the reason I mention this is maybe for some of you the reason this story of God saving a people for his own name bothers you so much is because it's not about you. Because it just rails against everything in you. Because there's no you in there. It's not Mike Reed flew in with his cape, right, and saw the just this depravity of humanity. And he he decided to atone for everyone's sin and and bring them back into right reconciliation with God. That, That wasn't what any of us did, right? We were in glad rebellion, belittling his name and all of his glory. And God said, I'm gonna come, I will send, I will incarnate, I will deliver, I will redeem. Right, that, that's the message of the scriptures, and it's always been that way. Israelites, right, in the Exodus, backed up to the Red Sea, we're doomed. What do we do? I, God says, it's okay, I'll, I'll be the hero again. I'll part the Red Sea. It's humanity saying, I'm doomed. I, I, can't, I can't live a righteous life. I can't make this chasm between me and God come closed. What do I do? And he says, I'll send Christ. He's always been the hero. He's always been the center. I, I love it. When I talk to people, they're like, I'm t- trying to find myself. You won't find you. You won't find you anywhere in there. It'll talk about what God's done for you and how God can save you, but ultimately to draw you back to him, not you. And that's the purpose of the scriptures. And so this whole letter, the reason I I build all that before you is to remind us, this whole letter from Paul to the churches in Galatia is about this. There's one hero, and his name is Jesus. There's one who's righteous, and it's not you, it's Jesus. There's one who gifts righteousness, it's not you, it's Jesus. There's one who atones for sin and is a substitute in your place, and it's not you, it's Jesus. It's Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. By his grace, grace, grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. So what he wants you to get. He wants you to get this grace in salvation. And what happened was these false teachers started entering the scene and infiltrating these churches. And what they were teaching was, well, um, first you need to be a Jew. And they need to be circumcised. And they need to obey the 600 plus laws of Moses. And they need to obey the ceremonies and rituals and traditions. Then you need to absorb yourself into their culture. And then, hey, Jesus is great. You can add Jesus in now and he'll kind of seal up your salvation. And Paul's going... That message will literally damn you, chapter 1. It says, don't believe that. Don't drift from the gospel of grace. Don't drift from how righteousness will be found. And I love it. That's why Paul last week we saw works backwards and says, no, you're all Abraham's sons by faith in Jesus. It's by trusting and loving in Jesus that then you share in these blessings of Abraham. You get God's love. You get God's favor. He brings you in as his adopted kids in the kingdom of God where he seals you, loves you, and serves you. Amazing. 
And that's the message of the scripture that he's trying to help us understand. And so this is where we pick up in the middle of Galatians 3 where Paul continues to explain how salvation is all by this grace. He wants us to get it. So he's going to continue from last week where he just finished explaining this promise made to Abraham, which we chatted about last week if you were here. Verse 15, chapter 3, this is what he says. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. I love this. Paul is so simplistic. He's so honest. He's so straightforward. He goes, okay, I'm going to use legal jargon now because maybe you'll understand what I mean when I talk about the promise and I talk about grace. Um, And he's he's trying to make this argument that, you know, when you make a will or like a final trust in your family, some of you are there, some of you are not even thinking about it, you should. Some of you one day might. uh, If you have a family and let's say something uh, horrific happens to you or your spouse, you you write out a will or a trust so that all your belongings, your inheritance will go to either your oldest or somebody who you want those things to go to. And he's saying, hey, um, once you make that thing ratified, um, when you die, that thing doesn't change. Like, it doesn't change the the trust. Like, you don't come back out of the grave and go, actually, I think it should go to him. Or actually, there's a new way I want this thing to happen. He goes, no, once it's ratified, once it's done and you're gone, that thing doesn't change. And he says, in the same way God made a covenant, and he's not going to change it later. He's not going to go back on the thing that he already promised. And so Paul's using this legal jargon to basically say this. If you're now saying that you can be saved by God by cleaning up your act, you're calling God a liar. That's basically what you're saying. So he said to Adam and Eve, there's a seed from Eve that's coming, right? It's going to bruise your heel, but he's going to crush his head. All talking about the Messiah Christ. He comes to Abraham in Genesis 12. We're going to get to this where he says, hey, out of your descendants will, will come an offspring, a deliverer, who's going to also be this redeemer, this one who will reconcile and restore the fracture and fall in humanity. He's showing all of this. So he's saying, you're calling God a liar. That somehow in the middle of this, he's changed the whole thing. This is what it's like. It's like um, you have your will stated, and your oldest, you're gone, and your oldest, whoever it is, receives it, goes before the judge, judge opens up the paperwork and says, okay, so you get the house, you get the car, you get the belongings, you get the whole bank account, it's all yours. Then he folds it up, and then he says, oh, hold on just a second, but you have to go to this college, get this GPA, and then I'll give it to you. No judge would do that, right? There's no extra clauses, right? It's ratified already based upon the promise, the covenant. The will. That's what Paul's getting at here. The judge has no right to ratify this document. Paul's argument is it's about promise. God already gave the promise. You're not going to be saved by something that came 430 years later. He's going to get at that in just a moment. Verse 16, he continues to unpack this. He says, now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. I love this. He's referring to to Genesis 12 when God made the promise to Abram. Comes to Abram. Later they added Ham, right? Abraham, which is to show the pluralness of his name, that he would be a part of a a global work of God. Through his descendants, through his nation, through his children's children would come this promise. But what he shows you here is, which is amazing, he says it's through your offspring, singular. Not offspring, plural, as in the nation of Israel, but as in singular, the person of Christ. Christ is the one, going back to Genesis 3 and Adam and Eve, he made a promise. He's coming. He's going to crush the head of Satan. He's going to wash you white as snow. He's going to gift you his righteous life. He's going to justify you before God. That's coming through the offspring. 
not offsprings. He's saying it's always been Jesus' plan. This is his prevailing point. Laws, rules, morality cannot save you. You doing better, you living a cleaner life, you being more obedient to traditions, rites, laws, religion cannot save you. God has always granted salvation through faith alone, in Christ alone, and he's not going to come along later and change that. Which is why he says this in verse 17. I love Paul. He's so human. This is what I mean. Can you hear him saying that? Okay, just in case you haven't gotten the first three chapters, let me say it again. This is what I mean. I'm helping you understand grace. I'm helping you understand a promise. I'm helping you understand that that God is what does this, that it's one-way love. It's not based upon your obedience. He says, this is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God, so as to make the promise void. It's all about the promise. God keeps his promises. Praise God he keeps his promises. Otherwise he would cease to be God, right? And we know in 2 Corinthians they all find their yes ultimately in Christ. He says, for if an inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by a promise. In other words, if now it's a new way, then it comes by your obedience and never by how he originally designed it. And your self-righteous self can earn your way into the gates of glory. He says, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. He's just saying, look, God promised to Abraham there'd be a deliverer, promised to Adam and Eve there'd be a deliverer, to all the prophets there'd be a deliverer, and then came Christ. And in the middle of all that came traditions and ceremonies and a sacrificial system, the 600 plus laws of Moses. God did not give those things to then create a new way now. It's always been about God's promise in Christ. So why is God going to deliver sinful men and women from Satan's sin and death? Because he promised. Because he promised. That's why. Now, if you're a thinker, and here's what we're going to deal with for the remainder of our time. Um, And Paul knows you're a thinker. He goes, if you're saying, well, I'm saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, why the law then? Isn't that the obvious question? Like, why the law then? Why did God give these things? Well, why did these things become available to us? There are many, but for sake of staying tethered to the text, I'll give you three that the text gives you right here. Number one, it reveals our sin. Verse 19. Why then the law? Well, good question, Paul says. It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Such a simple text. It makes total sense. No, it's so confusing. So if you're, if you're wondering, let me clear a few things up before we get into how it reveals your sin. Um, number one is you, you've got to understand that, that when God gives this law, when it's given via God through angels, right? That's how it was, it was given. He, he clears that up here, that there, was a, there were two parties involved for God to give this law, to give these commands to show there's a mess between two parties and it needs to be reconciled. There's something not not right going on here. He's revealing that. He's emphasizing that. And he's showing how the law came, right? But the law came through, you know, Moses was a mediary, which was through the flesh. But, but God sends his gospel in himself, and so the gospel is way more powerful than the law. Then you also have in this text this, this kind of space where Moses is this mediary, right? It's, it's this joint thing where he goes in between God and the nation of Israel, the people of God, to show, hey, things aren't right. But here's the thing with Moses. He comes down, he brings the law, he shows the people there's a mess, but he can't fix the mess. 
Like he has all these 600 plus laws, but he can't redeem and reconcile what's been broken. So he comes with a problem with no solution to the problem. And this is where it shows us that it was made because of transgressions. It reveals how sinful you are. That's why it was added. That's why it was given. Romans 7 says this. What shall we say then? This is Paul, same guy who wrote to the churches in Galatia. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. Indeed, I would not have known what sin was except through the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, do not covet. He goes, I would not have known how I didn't measure up to God's holy standard, how I did not act, I did not, these sins of omission and commission, the proclivities in my heart that I'm not even aware of, the, the dark spaces that haven't even been dug into, I never would have known they were there unless God revealed it. He gave me this law to show me this, to reveal that I cannot obtain the standard of God's holiness. Um, he goes, man, I came from reading that, really, whoa. Right? It's like, it's like those, um, those speed limit signs, you know, when you, when you drive past them. And the reason they're there is because everyone speeds. So, so you see it just throws it in your face. You're going 85 in a 30. Whoa, you know what I mean? Uh, now, the reason you're always going over is that's why they're there. Because it knows you'll always be sinning going down that hill. Like they know that you're always going to have the foot down, let the car coast. So let me show you how you're not obeying the law. Now, you can rail against it. You can say I'm outside of it. You can hate it for being there. But you're underneath that law. You're underneath governmental restraint. You don't have a choice in the matter. It reveals where you're off. In the same way, this, this law, he's showing us that this is the whole idea. You just start going down the list. And you realize it's not just external righteousness, Old Testament. Matthew 5, Jesus comes in and says it's internal righteousness. So just, so just because, you know, you think that you don't, like, actually murder someone, man, that hatred in there is actually condemning you still. I can, I can never think aggressively towards another human, ever, right? And then he's like, oh, and uh, I know you've never externally committed adultery, but man, I mean, you know, internally you lust and have perversions and wants that are not yours. Wait, I can never, ever covet, desire something that's not mine. Greed, idolatry, I mean, just go through the list. I broke it. What do you find yourself finding? You're, you're crushed under this realizing uh, it's impossible. But here's, here's the other part that I want you to get, which is, really important, is the reason that most of us, probably all of us, if we're honest, um, don't just go nuts over the speed limit, is not because you're righteous. It's because you don't want the punishment of the law. You don't want a ticket, right? So even you obeying the speed limit doesn't make you righteous <laughs> because you're still broken inside. You're doing it because you don't want a ticket. That's like, man, well, um, I'm not going to murder anyone, so I'm righteous. Well, that would mean you've never wanted to choke someone out. Like, like there's never been a time, seriously, where you've just wanted to, but I'm not going to murder. Why? You don't not murder because you're righteous. You don't choke them out because you don't want the lecture chair. You don't want sentenced to life in prison. I mean, I mean, if we're honest, that's how dark our hearts are. You've got these places that just try to get out and try to escape. But, but really, for most of us, the motivation is not that, hey, I'm really righteous. I kept this. I just don't want the repercussions. So here's what's awesome. The law reads everyone the same. It levels everyone the same. And this is what Paul has been getting at. Now, if I'm a betting man, and I am, not in a sinful way, not in gambling, but I, just so we're clear, if I'm a betting man, 
I'm guessing most of us believe we're relatively good people, right? I mean, come on, walk up to anybody. Hey, you a good person? Yeah, yeah, pretty good, right? I don't know, I don't know. never killed anybody. I'm, I don't know, I work, right? Let me ask anybody this question, like, hey, you think that you going to heaven when you die, right? Uh, yeah, probably, right? Why? I don't know, I'm a pretty good person. Right? I mean, nine times out of ten, I do this for fun. I'll ask people that. It's just amazing. Everyone thinks they're a good person. And what Paul's revealing here is, here's what's amazing. I mean, even those with an Eeyore complex still believe we're good. Relatively, somewhere in our hearts. Here's why we do that. Because we are constantly only comparing our strengths to everyone else's failures. Your holy standard is not the God who dwells in infinite perfections, who the, the psalmist says that you would actually dwells in unapproachable light, that if you were to get to see a glimpse of his glory, you'd be incinerated. But we don't compare ourselves to him. We compare ourselves to that person in my community group who I'm a little bit farther along with. I know more scripture, so I'm more superior. Right? I compare myself to Hitler's Bin Ladens. No, okay, I, I mean, like, I'm better than them. I'm not a terrorist. I've never annihilated out a group of people. So that's how you compare yourself constantly in your heart. Your standard is not God's holy standard. Your standard is someone you can find where you can belittle them and therefore exalt your name. And he's showing you that, man, the law is going to reveal that it does not matter how you've lived this life. And that's why I love that the law comes like a hammer to light glass and destroys the myth that you and I walk in. The swagger we have is cut off, Right? Even as we grow in our morality and grow in our doctrine and grow in our theology, the gospel of grace continues to humble you to a place where you see he's the one who's the champion, he's the hero, I had no ability in this thing, and there's someone who outdoes me, even though I can find other people, and ultimately it's God who outdoes everyone. He's holy. He exists without flaw, without any inkling of sin. He does all things for the good of his creation and glory of his name. He never once has to commit idolatry because he's fully satisfied in his godness. He, he is infinitely perfect. So therefore, anyone under him has problems and has struggles and has issues. So the law crushes that. And the law reads everyone the same. That's why it's not just for those of you who claim to be religious or irreligious. That's why if you're somebody who attends church You've attended church your whole life, and you can recite the Ten Commandments, and you can recite Scripture. And if you do all that still as a way to somehow work your way up the ladder to achieve righteousness before God, you're still lost on the day of judgment. And that person who's irreligious who says, well, I don't need to go to church. I don't need to, this grace stuff. I'm going to do it my own way. You're just as lost as the religious man. So the law just reads everyone the same. And says, without Christ, doesn't matter what you do, how you act, how you perform, what your label is, what your political party is, what your ethnicity is, doesn't matter. You're lost without Christ. You're lost without his righteous life and his obedience on your behalf. That's what Paul's getting at. This is why everyone loves God till he says something. Right? Now, I love God. Yeah, I love God. I'm super spiritual. You know, he said this. Whoa, he can't say that. I'm not going to that church. I'm not listening to that. Oh, I'll take that. I'll do away with that. I'll white out this. I'll take this part of the scriptures that I like. I won't take this part of the scriptures I don't like. We all, we all love God till he says something. Till Moses comes down Sinai. That's why the Exodus, right? He goes, man, I'm going to deliver you out of your worship to false gods. I'm going to bring you into my safety. Bring you into my promises. Bring you into my land. And, and what happens? All the people like, God's going to speak. Oh, Moses, you go do it. I don't want to hear him. You go, you go hear what he has to say. 
and he comes down, and what's the message? The message isn't, man, you guys are so amazing, I'm going to save you. It's not the message. The message is, I'm so amazing that I'm going to save you. It's not, I'm going to save you to glorify you and put you in the center. It's, I'm going to save you to keep me in the center so you would fully enjoy my glory and worship my name fully and just marvel at my mercy and grace. And that's the message he's always given through the scriptures, to reveal that we're sinful. Number two, to reveal that we're helpless. Not only are we sinful, to reveal that we're actually helpless. Verse 21, is the law contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. That's Christ. So I want you to, if you're a circler in your Bible, I want you to circle that word imprisoned. Some of you guys, the language says uh, captive. You were held captive by the law. Here's why the law imprisoned everyone. Is there any freeing or salvific language in that text in regards to the law? No, there's none. Like the law does not offer freedom. The law imprisons. The law hems you in. The law reveals that you're sinful and that you're helpless and cannot get out. I mean, do we know any man or woman who is incarcerated who likes it and doesn't want to be free? I bet the majority desire to be free, desire to not to be imprisoned. And this is why Paul's saying there's no salvific implications whatsoever in the law because the law was never intended to do that. It was to imprison you and show you how you're helpless. That you need something outside of you to be your curse. You need something outside of you to be your substitute. You need someone outside you to unlock the Satan, sin, and death prison that holds you captive. He says, and that's Christ. This is why the human spirit ever since Genesis 3 has desired to be free. This is why culture will say to you, just do what makes you feel good. Why? Because they believe that is freedom. But it's false freedom. It's pseudo freedom. Because what you find is when you just do what makes you feel good, you find yourself in more bondage than before most of the time. This is why it's just interesting the conversations I have often where they will say, yeah, but, but you know, you're, you're the one in, in bondage because you have all those rules to keep. Really? I'm, I'm the one who's in bondage? You're the one who has to have The lust of pornography. You're the one who has to have a bank account that's so full. You're the one that has to have the approval of man and woman. You're the one that has to have prestige. You're the one that has to have something to exalt yourself, to make you feel validated and worthy and identified. I don't need any of that. Christ has satisfied that. So who's really the free man and woman? Who's really free? You're actually in bondage to those things. You have to have those things. Yet Christ comes and releases you from the bondage of those things to be satisfied in a better thing that never has a ceiling that you never get frustrated with, that you never get exhausted for, that you never get uh, anxious over because God has fully and finally set his heart in your heart. He's put his spirit in your spirit. He set you free from your hemming in imprisonment to the law. 
That's what Paul's getting at, man. You are the freest man or woman who exists. And now you're even free to enjoy this Christ all the more by obeying his good right commands because they lead to life. And John says they are not burdensome. So I don't obey the rules or the laws because I'm earning something or I have to or I'm trying to break free from something. I've already been broken free. Because I'm free, I obey. You don't obey to be made free. And he's showing when that happens, when you understand grace, it unlocks something in your heart to where all of a sudden the law does not terrify you. It tastes so sweet to you. When God says something to you, you see it as life. You see it as holy. You see it as good and you chase it. You don't care if people mock you. You don't care if the other things get in the way. You're going, man, I'm following him. He's unlocked my freedom. I don't need that. I don't need that. I don't need that. The world's enslaved. And Christ frees us from this curse of the law. It's amazing. It's to reveal that we're helpless. It's to reveal that we cannot get out of this prison. And this leads to number three. It leads us to Jesus. It leads us to Jesus. He says here that so then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. So now we are no longer under a guardian, but for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. It's huge. I love what he says. He says the law was this guardian. That, that word literally means tutor. Now don't think... Um, you know, a, a nice tutor that comes over to your house, sits in your living room, your mom pours tea for and helps you with algebra. That's not, that's not tutor here. This is more schoolmaster. Back in the day, these, there, were, there were students from infancy to like age 14, 15, and they would have a schoolmaster that would literally be a guardian, a tutor that would show them right from wrong. It would even have the authority to beat them with a stick or, or, or do some things that seemed a little bit harsh to show them, hey, you're not on track. The actual word here comes from the cat of nine tails that were used to flog Jesus. So you want to talk about a, in other words, it may hurt, it may sting, but it's leading you somewhere. And when the, when the child turned 15, 14 or 15, they'd say, hey, you're a Roman citizen, you're, you're now free on your own. You can, this was all done. This guardian analogy is we needed a guardian to show us when we were off, to show us our sin, to reveal we couldn't get there on our own, and we're free to see, hey, it's Christ. Hey, it's Jesus. It leads you to the only place where righteousness is found. It leads you to the only place where there's a solution to your problem. Where your longings and your shame and your condemnation and your guilt and your joys and your fears are all met in the same warmth of Christ at the end. And yet the law was used as this kind, disciplinary guardian to tutor you to Christ. To show you and teach you that when you realize I feel so imprisoned by this law, I've tried to vindicate myself not out of worship to God, but through my own self-exaltation, through my works, through my merits, and I can't do it, man. I need someone else to help. I'm getting beat by this thing. The weight of the law is crushing me. And this is why I love this text. Because this text reminds you <laughs> that the crushing weight of the law is on a timetable. Like you're not going to be crushed forever. You see that in the text? I mean, in order that, right, this guardian is here, this law that crushes, but now faith has come. Easter morning reminds us that the law no longer can crush you. 
It can no longer hold you captive. And you realize in its fullness, people in the Old Testament believed that guardian was coming, Jesus Christ, right? And we have believed the guardians led us backwards towards Jesus Christ. And in his consummation in the future, we see that Christ has come. He's delivered us. He's freed us. We are now free to enjoy and worship him and find joy in our souls and glory to his name. This is amazing. He's showing you that that hammer that came like glass on your heart has an answer. You're exposed, you're lost, you're imprisoned, you're captive. I can't do it. Oh, there's a redeemer who's going to do it. There's a Messiah who's going to do it. There's God himself who's going to do it. He's going to step into human space and deliver me from Satan's sin and death. And this is what we see here. He redeems us. He liberates us. We do not need to be enslaved forever because Christ came and unlocked our prison. He unlocked our sentence. And you get to walk out free. And how do you respond to someone who unlocks your key for free? You thank him the remainder of your life. You're awesome. You're awesome. I didn't turn the key. I didn't even find it. I had no way of getting out of this thing. And all of a sudden, he's exalted through all that you say and do. And this is why he um, gives us this. You know, I was thinking about how this analogy I love is, is, is we, we often misuse the law. Because he showed us it's not a bad thing. It's actually a very good thing. It does not save you. It does not make you righteous. It does not redeem you into the family and adopt you as God's child. But it's like this ladder, right, where most of us use it as a ladder where we climb up. We want to step up. We want to believe that because I've done this, now I can look down on other people who have not done that. It only feeds the self-righteousness that goes against God's whole plan of creation. Instead of climbing up towards God, realizing God descended and gives us a law that's more like you lay the, the, the ladder on the ground. It's like train tracks. It's how you should see it. It tutors you. It shows you how to see Jesus. It keeps you on the path. When you're off, it reminds you that you're off and that you need him. And it keeps lifting your eyes. Hebrews 12, Colossians 3, to life, death, resurrection. You're off the track again. Jesus. Off the track again. Jesus. You're unrighteous. Jesus. I failed my marriage. Jesus. I sinned yesterday. Jesus. I'm going to sin tomorrow. Jesus. I just sinned. Jesus. That's it. It's just a track. Not so you feel superior, so you're indebted in gratitude to the one who's saving you at the end of the tunnel. The light's there and the light has come. And it's engulfed you. And that's conversion, in case you were wondering. That's what happens when you get saved. You realize that. That Christ alone could do this. It's this path that leads to life. It tutors me to see I need him. That's why he says in verse 26, a beautiful, beautiful thing. For in Christ Jesus, you're all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Not obedience, not morality. We do not go to the law to find healing. We go to Jesus Christ. Most of us, when we stumble and fall, we resort to the law and to moralism. The law will never heal you. It was never designed to do that. It was to further break you. So if you're going to moralism to find freedom, that's not the answer. You go to Jesus, who heals you. And then he gives you his good right commands to walk in fullness of life. But I love here how he ends because he closes and basically just says, I don't care your background. I don't care your nationality. I don't care your ethnicity. I don't care where you're from. I don't care how you grew up. Uh, it's faith in Christ. 
It's Jesus who saves you. It's not your heritage. It's not the color of your skin. It's not your behavior. It's not male, female. None is more superior. Man, Christ is superior. We exalt him. We all come under that as God's kids as he adopts us and we celebrate Jesus. He unifies us in that way. And he basically is saying here, are you willing to accept it's not about you and that it's about God? Are you willing to humble yourself? Because it's not about your background. Not you being Jewish or circumcised or following the 600 plus laws of Moses or joining a culture and adapting to what they do. It's about Christ and what Christ has done. Do you look at the law and go, I was in trouble, but thank you, God, for saving me. Thank you for tutoring me to my solution, which is Jesus. You know you've seen those name tags if you go to those functions, those dinners, right? Hello, my name is, you put your name on there. Paul's kind of given us that understanding of you had an old identity, you had an old name. He just wrapped this up last week. Your name was cursed. How my name's cursed. My name is death. My name is captive. My name is imprisoned. Oh, man. And then grace appeared. He took your name tag off. And he put a new one on. And he said, son, daughter, righteous, free. You no longer live under the curse of the law. You're redeemed. You're set free. By him becoming your substitute in your place. So you might enjoy him. And see with illuminated eyes. And an illuminated heart. And you, know, you now have a new name that's not marked by what you were. It's defined by now him. And, and that is just profound that he does this. He says, I don't, I don't see cursed anymore. I don't see shame anymore. I don't see sentenced anymore. I don't see imprisoned anymore. I see my son. I see my daughter. And I'm going to cover you in my kingdom. And I'm going to give you my inheritance. And that's how the inheritance comes. Not because you decided to take your name tag off and put a new one on. But because God, his own grace and mercy, saw you in your sin. And you're glad rebellion to his name. And pulled you toward himself and held you fast in the gospel and ripped off your name tag. Even against your will. And put a new one on, which gave you a glad heart to see him and worship him. That's what happens in our conversion. But here's the beauty, because I don't want you to miss this. Because God, his grace, has given us a deeply diverse church, which we are so grateful for. We prayed for this. We started meeting with 18 people that God would create a place that resembled heaven as best as it could. That we'd see tribes and tongues of different places here, gathering, singing. What I want you to hear is whatever race or ethnicity or group you might be in, when you come to Jesus Christ, you still are. He does not remove your distinctiveness. He makes us one. You've got to be really careful here. This is not like, oh, you remove your whiteness, remove your blackness, remove your Asianness, remove your Hispanicness. Remove... No, no, no. The distinctive is what shows off the glory of God. In that, that these people from all tribes and tongues are together actually being made one. He did not die to make you the same. It is so important that you understand this. Like, he didn't want you to adapt to a new culture. He didn't ask you to somehow graft yourself into acting and functioning. That's, just, that's why we need grace. That's why we need the gospel of Jesus Christ, because we're all one big, beautiful, goofy mess. 
right, bringing in how we were brought up, how we see things, how we see the world, how we see the gospel, and God says, man, no, no, that's going to show off my glory more as people witness my church coming together, all tribes and tongues. That's why at the end of Revelation, all tribes, tongues, and nations are worshiping, not because they are the same, but because they're one in Jesus. And it celebrates the gospel's work. So, so we, need to, we need to pray, we need to repent where we need to repent, where we're even subconsciously or not even meaning to kind of paste on culture or how we do this, it's how we do this. Or Man, we need grace, we need help, we need the Holy Spirit, but let's walk. Because the gospel's redeemed us, not you and me. And he's put us here, this is the family of God. And I love this, that, that God is doing this. That they be unified because they're unified and that they serve, love, adore Jesus. That's what they're unified in. But they remain distinct. Male, female still have distinct roles. People still have distinct roles given by God. It doesn't wipe all that away. You're still male and female. (laughs) Yet you're one in Christ. And we see each other as brothers and sisters. You know, I don't know what people have told you. Maybe they've told you. I've spoken to a number of you. They've told you because you've committed a certain sin that God will never save you. I got a different answer. He says he made a promise. He says he made a promise. He'll save you in Christ, not through your works. If you humble yourself and admit your need and that you need to trust in him and his life and his death and his resurrection and not your own, he offers to credit righteousness to you in place of him becoming your sin and paying your debt. This is the good news of the gospel. And some of you, you've been told that if you just do the Christian thing and you grow in morality, that God will like you. And that's bad news too, because you'll never do that. You never produce a place in you or in of yourself. You achieve what's necessary in his demand. You need infinite righteousness. And he gifts that in Christ. Maybe you need to humble yourself and admit, man, I've just been repenting of my church attendance, repenting of my desire to just check boxes and be a part of Christian community, to just be a part of it. Man, this is salvation. It's forgiveness of sin we're talking about. This is not just some cute hobby where we get together and we get to do things. And this is blood-bought citizens of another kingdom that Christ is asking you to look him in the face and say either I'm a blasphemer and glad idolater and I'll humble myself and embrace and repent of my sin and trust you Or you can walk away and rail against the entire plan of redemption by believing that you can do it. And Paul says, it only happens one way, by grace. And it's him making a covenant. You had no part in that. He made the covenant. He sealed the envelope. He made the promise. Not with you coming in going, oh, and I'll sign at the bottom. And I'll hold up my end. No, he made a promise. And that's what makes us heirs, according to Christ. Let's ask God for help. Help to believe the things that he said. This is going to fall in a lot of different places in our hearts. And we trust the Holy Spirit to do his work in each of our hearts in the ways that he needs to.